That's the moment when Mo Farah crossed the finishing line. And, you know, I dream one day that church is going to be like that. That we're going to be so excited about coming together and worshipping God that we're going to be screaming at the top of our lungs. So who remembers the London Olympics? That's clearly from the London Olympics. Who remembers it? Who, who got very, very excited about London Olympics? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I did too. And it seems such a long time ago now. Well, I guess it was. It was 2012. Um, so I've, never been to the, <laughs> I've never been to the Olympics. Um, I've just watched them on the telly. Anybody been privileged to go watch the Olympics? Did anybody? I know, yeah, yeah. Oh, but I, I imagine the atmosphere must have been astounding. It must have been absolutely amazing. Because I, I, I don't normally get into the Olympics. I, I, I find, to be honest, until London 2012, I found the Olympics a little bit boring. I would, I would tune in every now and again for the, for the shooting bits and for the unusual sports. But the running and all that kind of stuff, it didn't really interest me that much, whatever. Um, but I got into the London 12. I, I was watching... I was watching every, every minute of every day. I mean, maybe it was something about the fact that it was in our country and, and that we expected the team to do well. And in fact, you'll, if you remember, the country of Yorkshire went on to do particularly well, didn't it? I, th- I think, I think we would have come 10th, the country of Yorkshire. So isn't that, isn't that good? Um, look, the whole build-up with the volunteers was amazing, wasn't it? And what did they call them? Can you remember? The game makers, the games makers, they were called. And they were everywhere, and they were really promoted, and that was such a good thing as well. And, and the whole thing just, just brought a real positive vibe to the country, didn't it? That we hadn't experienced for a long time. In fact, to the bottom of Bolbeck Avenue, where we used to live, the Olympic torch went by. And that was, we just stepped out our door down the street and just watched the Olympic torch go by, and the policeman on his motorbike was high-fiving people as he went by, or well, there were several policemen. But it was so good. I, got, I did, I got sucked into it, big time. From the opening ceremony to the closing ceremony, I was hooked. And I think 99% of the rest of the country were, although considering who put your hands up this morning, maybe only 80%. Um, I thought more of us had been into it. Uh, but our, the, the thing is, our little island was on the big stage once again. Everybody was looking at the UK Every running, jumping, rowing, cycling event and so on just had a buzz. Um, which, like I say, you picked up just by watching it on the TV. I remember in particular the, the clapping. You remember the clapping that the, the UK athletes would start? And then, and then the hot, I think it was the jumpers in particular would do it before their long jumps and what have you. And, and, and just the whole stadium just started joining in. And just this join us, thunder. You know, it was brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah, well, and if you didn't think it was brilliant, just imagine it was brilliant, because cause I got really into it. Um, and there's excitement at stuff like that, isn't there? There's a fervor. There's an anticipation being present at such an electrifying event. Now, I want to read a bit of scripture that Ben has already alluded to, but let's turn to it. I'm going to read John 12. I'm going to read from verse 12 to 19, and I'm going to read from the message version, so you're going to have to try and work a little bit harder to keep up with the version that you might have in front of you, because the message is a, it's, it's a bit more readable, I think, um, than some of the more kind of King James versions and things like that. And that's why I've chosen to read from it here. So John 12, 
verses 12 to 19. The next day, the huge crowd that had arrived for the feast heard that Jesus was entering Jerusalem. They broke off palm branches and went out to meet him. And they cheered. What did they cheer? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Yes, the king of Israel. Jesus got a young donkey and rode it, just as the scripture has it. No fear, daughter Zion. See how your king comes, riding on a donkey's colt. The disciples didn't notice the fulfillment of many scriptures at the time. But after Jesus was glorified, they remembered that what was written about him matched what was done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, was there giving eyewitness accounts. It was because they had spread the word of this latest God's sign that the crowd swelled to a welcoming parade. The Pharisees took one look and threw up their hands. It's out of control. The whole world is in stampede after him. Now, you don't use words like that unless it really was a, a, a tremendous crowd, a tremendous following. This wasn't one or two people throwing some palm leaves on the ground and throwing their coats on the ground. This was hundreds, if not thousands of people greeting who they considered to be their king entering into their city. Because everything that we read here on this day outside Jerusalem is a type of excitement and fervor that happened in those great stadiums uh, in, at the London Olympics. Now the thing is, for three years, Jesus had been building and had been heading, to, he'd been building his ministry and heading towards this day. For three years, he'd performed one miracle after another miracle after another miracle. For three years, he's healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the leprous. For three years, Jesus has attracted one crowd after another, teaching them about the coming kingdom of God. And then, not more than a, just a week before this special day, he's gone to the home of Mary and Martha and raised their brother Lazarus from the dead. My point is that by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the crowd was primed. They were ready to rock and they were ready to roll. They were, they were ready to celebrate their coming king. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem wasn't going to be a casual stroll into the city. He had come deliberately to declare that he was the king of Israel, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the one that had been predicted for centuries by the prophets of God. Now, there's a story in the Bible that took place a year before this ride in Jerusalem. Jesus was teaching a, a large crowd in, in, out in the country, and it was getting late, and the people were hungry. So Jesus instructed his disciples to feed them. But the only food on, on hand was the, the lunch of a, a little boy. But Jesus blessed that small amount of food and fed everyone, thousands of people. And they amazingly had 12 baskets of food to spare. The crowd was so impressed at that point that they wanted to make him king right there and right then. In fact, John 6 verse 15 says that the people realized that God was at work among them in what Jesus had just done. And they said, this is the prophet for sure. God's prophet right here in Galilee. And Jesus saw that in their enthusiasm, they were about to grab him and make him king. 
So what did he do? He slipped off and went up the mountain to be by himself. It wasn't ready. It wasn't the time. The crowd outside Jerusalem sensed that, that, that then that Jesus was to be this long-awaited king of Israel. But actually, he wasn't the kind of king they want. Uh, the kind of king they wanted wasn't the kind that Jesus had in mind. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted a king that would not only sit on the throne of David, but to lead them in a revolutionary battle against the hated Romans. I mean, let's face it. Think about Jesus. He was everything you could hope for in a leader. He was charismatic. He was, he was decisive. He was powerful. He was capable of feeding thousands of people. Therefore, thousands of soldiers. He could heal the wounded and raise the dead. What an army that would be. Your, your, your soldiers are wounded, you heal them. Your soldiers died, they just rise again and carry on fighting. What an army that would be. Who could stand against such a king? Yep, they wanted and were completely expecting an earthly king to establish an earthly kingdom. But when it became apparent, just, just a few short days later, that Jesus wasn't going to be the king of kings that the crowd wanted. They called for his blood. And as Ben said earlier, they wanted his crucifixion. You see, Jesus had no intention whatsoever of establishing an earthly kingdom. He told Pilate, a Roman leader, my kingdom doesn't consist of what you see around you. If it did, my followers would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews, but I'm not that kind of king. Not this world's kind of king. In another passage in Luke 17, Jesus declared, God's kingdom is already among you, or in fact, within you. And in Romans 14, 17, he taught us, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of, what is it? Righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is God's rule and reign, which is advanced primarily through his church. And the church is what Jesus came to establish. In fact, Colossians 1 verse 13 teaches us that God rescued us from the dead end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the son he loves so much. The son who got us out of the pit we were in, got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. So that means right now, for those of us who believe, and therefore we're part of his church, we are in the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. Yes. We are in the kingdom of God. Jesus is our king right now. The kingdom of God isn't. And was never intended to be a physical kingdom. Because earthly kingdoms, they're far too limited to accomplish the goals that Christ had in mind. And I want to give you three points to explain what I mean by this. So firstly, earthly kingdoms are always limited by physical boundaries. 
So back during the Middle Ages, there was a physical kingdom that lasted a thousand years. And it was known as the Holy Roman Empire. And it began when Charlemagne took the throne in 800 AD and ended when Napoleon brought it to its knees in 1806. And it covered much of Europe. Among the nations included that we would recognize today are Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Belgium, and large parts of France, Poland, and Italy. And it existed and was intended as a physical, an earthly kingdom for Christendom. But it fell far, far short of being everything that God wanted. It was too limited. In fact, it tried to wrap a huge impenetrable fence around the church. But there's no need of walls to protect the church. The church doesn't need a fence to surround it. The church doesn't need protection. Why? Because the church is a force on the move. Isn't that good? Think about that then. If the church is a force on the move, and if you and me are part of that church, then we individually and together are a force on the, on the move. One time Jesus asked his disciples who the people of the world thought he was, and they answered that many were speculating that he was, he was John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked, but who do you say? Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, and now I'm going to tell you who you really are. You, are, you, Peter, are a rock. This is the rock on which I will put together my church. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. That's Matthew 16, verse 18. A church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. That's good. That's good. Why don't you just turn to your name and just say, that's good. That's so good. In other words, the church is built upon the foundation and power of Jesus Christ. The church was designed to be a vibrant force with the power to overwhelm the gates of hell. (gasps) So the church, as much as I love it, isn't just a Sunday morning meeting, is it? The church has got so much more to give. The church is so much more powerful than you or I have ever imagined it to be. And we are part of that church. And that's exciting. Now I'll ask you a question. How far do gates move? <laughs> they don't move very far at all, do they? Gates, as far as I'm aware, generally serve a couple of purposes. And that's to open, wait for it, and close. <gasps> so gates exist to open and close. Wow, I've just blown your mind with that one, haven't I? They don't do anything other than that. No matter how fancy they are, no matter how big they are, whether they slide open and close, whether they flip and open and close, whether it's some kind of, is it cantilever? I don't know. That kind of thing where they fold in, 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 in themselves. They, they, they don't, they're not 
they're not designed to do anything but open and close. They can't move. They're designed to protect. They're designed to keep things in. Listen, Jesus didn't save us to be on the defensive. He didn't save us to hide behind walls. Jesus saved us so that we could take the enemy, that is Satan, down. I'll say that again. We are designed, we were saved to take the enemy down. If Jesus, if God had had a physical, chosen a physical kingdom with earthly branded, this would have limited his church. But Jesus declared the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. So as believers, as believers, you take this kingdom wherever you go. And I'm telling you this, no worldly kingdom has the power to stand against it. Who believes that? Hallelujah. Come on, I'm beginning to see the energy and the power. Earlier in your Bibles, in the book of Daniel, a king, a king called King Nebuchadnezzar. What a great name Nebuchadnezzar is. Nebuchadnezzar. I don't Anyway, he had a dream. That deeply disturbed him. And he suspected that if he just told his magicians and his soothsayers what the dream was, they would attempt to fake an interpretation. So he demanded that they give him both the dream and its interpretation. And the only one capable of doing this was a guy called Daniel. And Daniel explained to Nebuchadnezzar that in his dream he saw a huge statue made of several different metals. And he said to him, while you were looking at this statue... Uh, a stone cut out of, mount, of a mountain by an invisible hand hit the statue, smashing its iron ceramic feet. The whole thing fell to bits. Iron, tile, bronze, silver and gold smashed to bits. And Daniel went on to explain that the statue represented several earthly kingdoms. And during the last of these kingdoms, it says this, the God of heaven will be building a kingdom that will never be destroyed. God of heaven will build in a kingdom that will never be destroyed. That's important to tell you in our secular society as we are pushed against, as we, as, as we, as we are prodded, as we, as we are, as we are uh, uh, kind of almost trying to be pushed onto the defensive. I'm telling you that the kingdom will never be destroyed. And it says this, nor will this kingdom ever fall under the domination of one another. In the end, it will crush other kingdoms, finish them off. Come through it all, standing strong, and, this is the important word, eternal. I don't know about you, but eternal means it doesn't have a stop. Eternal means forever. Eternal means it goes on and on. There is no kingdom on the face of this earth that can stand against the kingdom of God, because Christ's kingdom is not limited by physical boundaries. The church has citizens on practically every nation on earth. And the power of the church to affect change socially and in loads of other ways is only limited by our imagination. By thinking too small. It's time to think big, church. Time to think big. My second point. As to why God's kingdom was never meant to be an earthly kingdom is this. Since earthly kingdoms might require physical boundaries, those borders need to be protected by military might. Now listen to this. Four generations before Jesus was born, there was a man named Judah Maccabee. Anybody heard of him? Now he was known as the hammer. 
And he was a fairly righteous man who was upset by the fact that the Syrians occupied the city of Jerusalem. He was angry about this. And he rallied an army of Jewish men to his side to fight against the Syrians. And in 163 BC, he entered Jerusalem riding a massive stallion. And guess what the people did? They shouted and waved palm trees and cheered, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Judah was their hero, and many thought he was the Jewish Messiah. And when Judah and his army entered the city, they cleaned out the temple, and they burned incense, they offered sacrifices, and they lit a huge menorah, which is a seven-branched temple lampstand. And that burned for eight days. And to this day, our Jewish friends celebrate those eight days of the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, to remember his accomplishment. Not long afterwards, Judah was killed in battle and buried. He died. And that was it. But let me remind you again of what happened. Unless it's, unless it's just passed you by sometime what I've just read. When Judah came riding into the city, he was greeted by adoring throngs. The people weighed palm branches, and they they cheered, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Almost everything they did paralleled to what occurred, sorry, (laughs) paralleled to what occurred when Jesus entered the city four generations later, except for one thing. When Judah entered the city, he was mounted on what? A huge stallion. Now, why would he do that? Why ride such a, a powerful animal as he entered Jerusalem? I suggest he did that because he wanted to show his majesty, his authority. He intended to set up an earthly kingdom, and that required an earthly kind of power. But in the end, he died. And so did his dream of an earthly kingdom. Because that which is earthly will never last very long. By contrast, Jesus rode into Jerusalem Ben told you this morning, he came riding on a donkey. Now listen, a donkey, I don't know, unless you're from other culture that, that, that sees them another way, is not generally considered to be an animal of war. A donkey is not an animal that we normally associate with military power. In fact, a donkey seems quite a humble creature. Now, you don't see them much these days, but um, who remembers riding a donkey on a beach? As a kid. I, I, they, they are still around, but they don't seem to be around as, as much as they did when I was a kid. And so what you do, you, you get on your donkey, and you go up, and you go down, and then you're done. <laughs> and it's, but the thing is, as a child, it's quite exciting to ride that donkey, isn't it, on that beach. But could you imagine what, how excited you would get if you had a choice? Could you imagine... Right, You had this timid-looking creature, or you could ride a massive stallion. That ride up and down that beach then, I think, would take on a whole, <laughs> a whole new vista. You'd be three or four foot higher. I don't know how much bigger you would be. And as a little boy, I think I, think I would have chosen the stallion rather than the, the donkey. Because I, I would have... I would have thought it looks a bit more manly than a donkey. Looks a bit more powerful. 
and I'd rather be sitting astride a six-foot-tall beast ready to take on the world rather than a... <laughs> so a donkey doesn't come across as an impressive animal. The donkey is a humble creature, and I think it's actually really important that Jesus chose this kind of creature to ride into Jerusalem because his kingdom was not going to be about a force of arms and coercion. And that's really important for us to remember. Because there are times when we're treated, where we're tempted to treat his kingdom in exactly that way. Even I'm tempted by it. When I'm on social media and someone posts something I find offensive, particularly when it's about my faith and my God, my first reaction can sometimes bring out the keyboard warrior in me. And I want to I lambast them for posting something clearly so stupid and incorrect. How many of you know friends on social media who just have to comment on everything? And sometimes after they've written it, you're not quite sure whether they're supporting you or not. They've just had their say. But listen, I, I, I can't do that and I don't do that. Maybe once upon a time I would have done, but I certainly don't do it now. Because that's not a proper thing for a Christian to do. Because the kingdom of God is not about force and coercion. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. It's about love. It's about setting an example. So finally, my third point as to why Jesus hadn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. Because this is all about perspective. It's what they expected and what Jesus actually came to do. So let me say this. Earthly kingdoms are almost always focused on who's in charge. When Jesus' disciples talked about him and his kingdom, what was often a number, uh, an issue on their minds was this. In fact, it, it tells you in Mark 10, James and, James and John, they come to Jesus and they ask for something. And Jesus says, what is it? I'll see what I can do. And they said, arrange it so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory. One of us to your right, the other to your left. What do these boys want then? Well, they wanted to have authority and position. But the kingdom of God is not about authority and position. It's about serving God and it's about serving one another. Jesus taught his disciples that his kingdom was going to be different from any earthly ones in this significant respect. This is from Luke 22, verses 25 and 26. Kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. And then he told them this quite astounding thing. I have taken my place among you as one who serves. And that's astounding because this is the creator of the universe. God who made every atom, every particle that exists in this created verse in which we find ourselves, every star, every planet, every human, every animal. He said, I have come to you 
as the one who serves. Talk about setting an example. You see, Jesus hadn't come to exercise authority. Jesus came to serve. He came to seek and save those who were lost. He came to meet our needs and lift us up out of the mire of our everyday lives. He came to minister to us. And this is the mindset he wants to build into his kingdom. He created the church to be a team effort. And if you don't hear crying, your church is dying. You see, yeah, you've got preachers, you've got elders, you've got pastors, you've got Sunday school teachers, you've got youth pastors, you've got others who have roles of responsibility in the local church. And quite often these are, these are public roles and indeed they're sometimes seen as the face of the local church. But here's the thing, there's absolutely no place in the kingdom of God for grandstanders. What do I mean by that? There's no place in the church for people who simply desire control and authority. The church is designed to be a place where everyone serves everybody else. Where everyone serves everybody else. In some way, whether it be large or small, your heart and your mind is, how can I serve my brother and my sister? Because as you're serving your brother and your sister who have Christ living in them, therefore you are serving Christ. Now, for a long time, and this seems... A long, long, long time ago now, there was once a successful football team known as Manchester United. How I wish Dan Vickers was here this morning. And this team was managed by one of the most successful coaches ever to grace a football stadium, Alex Ferguson. Now, as a Leeds fan, it's pretty painful to admit this. But it is the truth. Ferguson made Manchester United into a... That's his name, isn't it? Manchester United. Not disunited. And they made them into an unstoppable force. Uh, And there's a team playing against them. If you beat them, it felt like a cup final victory despite where you were in the season. If you beat them, it was amazing. It wasn't expected. Now, he had his critics. He had his hair dryer moments. You know, that way he shouted, apparently shouted so loudly, it's like a hairdryer blowing people back. But that's not what I want to focus on. I wanted to think about the team that he created. He created a team that worked for one another, poured blood and, and tears for each other. They celebrated victories as a team. And when they, when they lost, which was rare, they came together to accept joint responsibility. There wasn't any individual who let them down. If the team didn't win, they all didn't win. If the team won, they all won. No one was above the team. And if you got too big for your boots, you were out. Yap Stam. Anybody know Yap Stam? If you're a football fan, do you know what I mean? He was a prime example. An amazing defender. Phenomenal defender. But he was kicked out of the United team because he couldn't play as a team member. Now... The living and the dying for each other. The taking responsibility together, part of this example. This is the kind of teamwork that Christ wants to build into his church. So look, that that analogy will break down. But the, the, the point is about the teamwork, about living and dying for one another, about serving each other. That's the kind of teamwork that Christ wants to build into his church. Jesus wants to establish a kingdom where all the citizens of the kingdom are working at building one another up. 
In fact, the church should be a place of one anothering. Jesus said, remember the root command, love one another. And the Bible goes on to say that we should be devoted to one another, Romans 12.10. Accept one another, Romans 15.7. Serve one another, Galatians 5.13. Bear with one another, Ephesians 4.2. Speak encouraging words to one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Be gentle with one another, sensitive, Ephesians 4, verse 32. And we should forgive one another as quickly and as thoroughly as God in Christ forgave you. Church is not about me. And it's not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And all the people around us that he came to save. And when we do it right. When we give Jesus and his kingdom the kind of attention they deserve. People will want to see Jesus. They will want to see Jesus and they will say, we belong to that. After Jesus had been acknowledged as being king by the crowds, we're told that some Gentiles came up to one of the disciples and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Can you help us? So when we do this church thing right, Jesus will get the glory. People will come to each one of us to ask, to see, and to know about the Jesus that we serve. In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say sorry. We give second chances to anyone and we also have lots of fun in this house we definitely forgive we also do loud we give the best hugs we are family and in this house that means we, we love. love.